All right, let's turn in our Bibles, if we can, to the book of John. John chapter 20 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Lord, we just want to take a moment as we um, just transition, not from worship, but just a different expression of worship um, as, we, as we dive into your word. We just want to take a moment just to quieten our hearts. We want to pray, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present and here and ready and eager to teach us about Jesus. I pray that everything that I say that doesn't need to be remembered would fall to the ground. But Jesus, your word to us today would be remembered, would resonate in our hearts and would transform us today. We want to leave here changed, Lord Jesus. Changed because we've met with you. And I pray that we would do that in and through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 20. Uh, nearly 19 years ago, May 2004, um, my wife Deborah and I and our two girls, who were six and five at the time, arrived here in Chicago to start or to plant Church in the City, which would later change its name to Anthem Church. And we arrived here in the States on what is known as a religious worker visa. Now, back then, a religious worker visa allowed someone like us, a couple, a family like us, to come into the country for three years, and then it would need to be renewed um, after two. So when the time came for our visa to be renewed, we were working with an immigration lawyer who told us that the best way to go about the process of renewal was for me as the primary visa holder to leave the country and fly to the nearest embassy, which was in Ottawa, Canada, and to go ahead with the renewal interview process there. The problem was that, is that if the visa got denied, if, if it wasn't renewed, there was no way of me getting back into the country. And I would then have to leave Debs back in the States to wrap up um, everything that we had built over that, those, those three years and move to, I don't know where, we hadn't kind of figured that one out. Um, so I arrived in Ottawa on the Sunday night, uh, booked into a hotel, woke up early on the Monday morning to walk with my immigration lawyer and about 10 or so of his clients, and we went to the embassy in Ottawa, where, um, we went through, where I went through the visa renewal process. And it seemed to go pretty well, I was pretty confident, but the sad thing is, they don't tell you there and then whether you've got your visa. You have to go away and uh, spend another, sleep another night and come back at noon the next day where they would give you your passport and then you'd flick through the pages to see whether your visa was, was renewed. So I went back to the hotel and had a sleepless night, um, obviously thinking about you know, the significance of this moment, and arrived the next day and there was a line of about 40 or 50 people outside the security um, at, at the visa, uh, sorry, at the embassy and one by one, the security guard gave uh, folks their passports. And when it came to me, he kind of rumbled his way uh, through various boxes, and he couldn't find my, my passport. Uh, he made a few phone calls. Obviously, my heart's beginning to race at this time. You know, he made a phone call. Yes, yes, all right, I'll send him right through. And he puts the phone down, and he says, Sir, they want to see, someone wants to see you inside. I mean, you could just imagine wh what I was thinking and feeling at the time. So I walked into the embassy. It was lunchtime. At the time, so the embassy was quiet, and I, I remember walking down the hallway, it was quiet, it was cold, it was dark, um, found my way into the waiting room, 
and sat down and no one came to, to attend to me for an entire hour. I just sat there waiting and during that time I faced the very real possibility of a life not lived in the US. I began to think about all that we had established over the past three years as a family and also all that God had done at church in the city at the time. And I began to think about, in both fronts, both personal and also as a church, all the, the reality of, of potentially hopes and dreams and promises from God potentially not coming to pass. And I sat there, and the last 45 minutes, I, I just wept. I wept at the very real possibility of a life not lived in the U.S. Today, what we're going to do, as we look in this passage in John chapter 20, we're going to learn about Mary Magdalene who ran to Jesus' tomb and found that the tomb was empty. And she faced the very real possibility of something far worse than a visa not being issued. She faced the very real possibility of a world without Jesus. She faced the very real possibility that death and darkness and the devil would have the final word. That the world as it was at that time and as it is now is as good as it gets. Well, the good news is we got our visa. We sat there in the waiting room. I sat there in the waiting room for an hour, and eventually someone nonchalantly walked up to one of the glass windows and knocked on the window and motioned me over and very casually kind of, you know, half threw my passport across the counter, not realizing the turmoil that I'd gone through for the past hour, and without an apology, kind of just let me flick through the pages. Didn't even tell me if I'd got the visa, but there it was. Uh, in my passport, and I was able to fly home, and here we are as proud U.S. citizens years later. But I want to tell you, in even the news for me, and us, and for Mary Magdalene, and for us, and for the world, Jesus is alive. Today, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Today is the best day of the year. Today is the day on which everything changes. Today is even greater than if we took 4th of July, Cinco de Mayo, and every other nation's Liberation Day and brought them all together. Today is greater than that day. Today is the day that death, that, that death was defeated by life. Today is the day that hope invaded hopelessness. Today is the day that brokenness was done away with and wholeness came. Today is the day that captives were set free. Today is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Today is the day that on which everything changes. Today, friends, I want to tell you, Easter Sunday changes everything. And we're going to learn about that in our text today in John chapter 20. If you want to follow along, there will be the text behind me, starting in verse 11. John 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had, that he had said these things to her. A couple years ago, I started receiving emails from the state's treasurer's office. I don't know if you have too, but the emails contained the news that they were in possession of millions of dollars worth of property and that potentially I was eligible to receive some of these millions. As I say, perhaps you've received some of these emails too. And I at first ignored it. I, it's a scam. I was very skeptical of the news that they were telling me. But it, they, those emails kept coming month after month after month. For a year and a half, they kept coming. And I thought to myself, maybe they know something that I don't. So I duly decided to investigate how much of these millions was due to me. And I did the research, and I found that out of all of the millions of dollars of, of unclaimed property that they owned, I was owed 75. 75 measly dollars. But I want you to think for a moment, imagine if instead of $75, imagine if I was owed millions of dollars. I would have been so frustrated that I allowed my skepticism to, to get in the way of doing the research that I needed to do to see whether what was promised was actually mine. I, I want to I suggest today that there, perhaps there might be some folks who are with us this morning who approach the Christian gospel in the same way. That the news of the Christian gospel just seems too good to be true. The promise of, of God forgiving our sins just seems, it seems like a scam. And perhaps you're allowing your skepticism to get in the way. Perhaps you're not just skeptical about the promise of God. Perhaps you're skeptical about God himself whether he actually will be faithful to fulfill what he promised. And friends, these questions that we wrestle with about whether the promises of God seem too good to be true or whether God will be faithful to fulfill his promises, they're not just questions for those who don't follow Jesus. I would say they are questions that even followers of Jesus at times wrestle with. So is God faithful to fulfill his promise? Is God's promise of the forgiveness of sins too good to be true? These are questions that we're going to hopefully answer through our, uh, in our text. And, and as we go through the text that we looked at this morning, what we're going to discover is that the resurrection of Jesus, on which the entire Christian gospel hangs, there are four things that we're going to pull out of this text. Firstly, the resurrection of Jesus is rational, meaning it's a, it's a fact of history. But it's not just a fact of history. The, the resurrection doesn't just challenge us cerebrally or in our, in our thinking. The resurrection of Jesus is also merciful. It's personal. And it's wonderful. The first thing that we're going to look at, Jesus' resurrection is rational. Now, we didn't read the first few verses of John chapter 20. But if we did, they will tell you that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away. And so she ran back to where the disciples were, and she, she tells John and Peter, and the three of them rush back to the tomb. John gets there first, and he, and he peers inside. And then verse 6 and 7 tell us, Peter came along behind him, behind John, and went straight into the tomb. He saw, and that's the word I just want to look at in a few moments, he saw the strips of linen lying there, 
as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now, we are told that Mary Magdalene got to the tomb and saw the stone had been rolled away. What's fascinating is John uses a, the, the Greek word, which we would, um, uh, uh, we would translate to John, uh, uh, that Peter, that, sorry, that Mary noticed or Mary observed that the stone had been rolled away. But fascinating, he uses a completely different word, talking about Peter going into the tomb and seeing that the tomb was empty. That's the word for uh, uh, to, be, to reason, to consider, to look around intently, to answer the question, what on earth is going on here? You see, Peter needed evidence to believe in the resurrection. And so do we. So what evidence is there? What evidence is there to prove the resurrection of Jesus? And I want to answer that question with initially just a kind of a blanket statement by saying this, that there is overwhelming research by both secular and Christian scholars that support the belief that Jesus' resurrection was a real event in human history. And I want to tell you, and you can go and do your own research, but there are numerous, perhaps even endless resources available to us to, to prove this particular fact. As an aside, if you are interested, I would suggest the best place to start is a website called bethinking.org. It's an incredible website of resources, of, of sermons and, and papers and, and research documents uh, written about challenging topics about the Christian faith and faith in Jesus Christ. But friends, right before us in this text that we just looked at, there is, there is overwhelming evidence for the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and one of the reasons is the fact that Mary Magdalene is the first person to witness and to encounter the resurrected Christ. Now, me saying that to 21st century Chicagoans probably doesn't mean very much. But let me tell you that at the time that John was writing his gospel, women were not held in very high esteem. In fact, there was a Greek philosopher at the time who was taking attack, who, who, was, who was placing his attack on the Christian faith. And one of his main lines of attack was the fact that Mary was the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. He, he writes this, now don't be offended, but he writes this, how can anyone expect a rational man to listen to the testimony of an hysterical woman? That's what he says. Yes, it is worth, worthy of laughter. That's, that's what he says. It's a ridiculous statement now, but the point that, that needs to be made is if you're trying to fabricate this, if you're making up the story of Jesus' resurrection, you would not include the first witness being Mary Magdalene. You're just opening yourself up for attack. So why is Mary recorded as the first witness of Jesus? Well, simply because she was. 20 years later, after Jesus' resurrection, the apostle Paul writes a letter to the ch a church in Corinth, and that letter has been, is, has been saved for us. It's found in the Bible. It's under the book 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, Paul writes this. He says, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, exactly as the scripture says. And then he presented himself alive to Peter and then to the twelve and later to more than 500 of his followers, all at the same time, most of them who are still around, although a few have died. Then he spent time with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him. And he finally presented himself alive to me. 
What Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is, if you're struggling to believe that Jesus is alive, if you're struggling to believe in the resurrection, and if you don't believe what I'm writing, then, then go and ask Peter. You know him. Go and speak to the 12. You know them too. Go and find somebody from those 500. Go and speak to James. You know him as well. All of them will testify to the fact that they have seen the resurrected Lord. I could do an entire preaching series on this, but I need to bring this point into land just to say the resurrection is rational. It's rooted in historical fact, but there's so much more. And secondly, the resurrection is not only rational, but it's merciful. For three days, the disciples and followers and friends of Jesus faced the very real possibility of a world without Jesus. The possibility that Jesus was in fact dead. Remember, they had heard that the tomb was empty and they rushed off to find the tomb empty. And, and verse 10, which we didn't look at initially, but cast your eyes on verse 10 because it's a fascinating verse. The disciples found the tomb empty and then they went back to where they were staying. I, I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by that verse. They had followed Jesus for, for, for three years and seen him do all the miracles and his claim to be the Messiah. And he died. And three days later, the tomb is empty. And they walk, went go back to what they were doing. But that wasn't the case for Mary. Mary stayed at the tomb. And she wept. You see, Mary knew that if Jesus was dead, her world was over. If you don't know who Mary was, in Luke chapter 8, we're told that Mary Magdalene was the woman that Jesus delivered a legion, a, an entire host of demons from her. She, she not only heard about, but she experienced freedom and, and faith and, and hope that she had never experienced before until she met Jesus. And if he was dead, all of that would die with him. Years ago, we were offered an old piano from a friend of, a, a friend of ours. Don't be alarmed. It's a, a fault in the ADT. Or oh, I shouldn't have said their name. There are, equally good, <laughs> there are equally good security services out there from an unknown security service firm. Just a fault in the, in the system. Years ago, we were offered a piano from a friend of ours who led a church in Westridge. And this old piano was down in a basement. And in probably the worst moving decision that I've ever made in the history of being alive, I agreed to take this piano free of charge on the condition that I moved it out of the basement up to the top of a three flat where we live. And I was foolish enough not to pay for movers, but tried to wrangle some friends to help me move it. That's another story for another time. I think all of those people have left the church. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Don't worry. Um, but we, we got it up into our living room, and then we, we hired a piano tuner to come, and he spent some time tuning the piano, but discovered that there were some keys that didn't work. But it was okay, because the keys were on the high end and on the low end of the piano keyboard. People who played the piano in our house worked around the broken keys. I want to say to you, friends, that a life lived without hope in Jesus is something you can't play around. 
It's something that you can't just kind of set aside. A, the, a life uh, lived without the reality of the resurrection of Jesus is not something that you can set aside and ignore. Life lived without the resurrection of Jesus and the reality of the hope that he brings is not life at all. And that's why Mary lived. Oh, sorry, that's why Mary wept. I love, as we read this passage, we, we, we see how Jesus goes after Mary. Look at the questions Jesus asks. Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? He asked. You see, friends, Mary would never have known that it was Jesus unless Jesus made himself known to Mary. Mary would never have discovered that Jesus was alive unless Jesus made himself known, unless he went after her. And I don't want to contradict the first point that I made when I said it's important for us to seek truth when it comes to issues of faith. But can I say it is humanly impossible to find faith in Jesus because faith in Jesus is from Jesus. He makes himself known. He reveals himself to us. He opens our minds and our ears and our hearts to the truth of who he is. He's the one who's always speaking to us. He's the one who's guiding us all the time. And he's here right now, speaking to us, whether it was through the worship or now as we unpack this word or, or later as we break bread or, or allow God to minister, he is speaking to us all the time. The story of Mary is a wonderful summary of the gospel. Jesus makes himself known to a broken woman, to a social outcast, and she's the first person to see the, the risen Christ, and, and, and to her, Jesus says, I want you to go, and I want you to tell others that I am alive. And friends, I want to ask the question, is there any clearer way that Jesus should, can communicate to us that his salvation is by grace and grace alone? That it's not based on good works or social status or personal achievements. Salvation is by God's work, not by our work. Salvation is, is for the weak, not for those who claim they are strong. Salvation is available to, to us by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. The resurrection is rational, it's merciful, but also it's personal. If you were invited somehow to, 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 as a consultant to decide how Jesus should return after his resurrection, how would you have structured it? Perhaps if you're a Marvel movie fan or a DC movie fan, perhaps it would be something along the lines of what you've seen in the movies. You know, our hero is, is utterly defeated or presumed dead. And there's an airplane that's coming into, uh, kind of getting closer to a city and it's about to crash into a completely packed football stadium. And out of nowhere, our hero arrives or uh, completely surprised uh, uh, out of nowhere. And he stops the airline from crashing into the football stadium and thousands are cheering and it's streamed on cable TV. That's not how Jesus returns. Maybe if, if he says no to that, maybe you would come up with the idea of, well, Jesus, at least as Mary Magdalene or the disciples poke their head in the tomb, perhaps you can be like, surprise, it's me. But that's not what Jesus chooses. Mary is completely overwhelmed with doubt. Her head is spinning with questions and uncertainty. And instead of appearing out of nowhere and saying, it's me, instead of answering those questions, instead of settling her doubt and uncertainty, 
Jesus says, Mary. More important than answering questions, and, and Jesus does answer our questions. More important than that is a personal, intimate relationship with him. And that's what he's showing us right here. That's what he's teaching Mary, and that's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that he's saying to us, I'm alive, and I'm right here, and I want to have a personal relationship with you. And as I have this personal relationship with you, Jesus is saying, you can discover the deepest secrets of who you are. I love how Jesus uses Mary's name to reveal who he is and then to reveal who she is made to be. Friends, you know as well as I do that we live in an age that's obsessed with discovering our identity. But at the same time, never before are we more unclear about who we are and what we are called to be. And that's a sermon series that we're going to do later on. But let me just say this. Culture tells us to look within and to discover ourselves there and then to tell the world what we've found. The problem is we are, we are social beings and we need others. We need outside help to help us discover who we are. We, we, we need someone we adore to adore us. The problem is everyone around us is equally flawed as I am. Only Jesus who created us, who loves us expansively and unconditionally and eternally and personally, loves us in a way that empowers us to discover the deepest secrets of who we are. Maybe you're here today and you are overwhelmed with questions and doubt and uncertainty. Instead of searching for those questions right now, instead of trying to settle the doubt right now, perhaps it's time to slow down to quieten your heart and listen to Jesus calling you by name. He fills us with a love that drives out fear and helps us to discover who we are meant to be. The resurrection is rational, merciful, personal, and lastly, it's wonderful. This book by Francis Spufford, it's a book called Unapologetic. And what he does in one of the chapters is he paraphrases John chapter 20, the passage that we just read. And he says this, but when she, Mary Magdalene, came to the grave, she finds that the linen has been thrown into the corner and her body is gone. Evidentially, an anonymous burial isn't quite anonymous enough after all. She sits outside in the sun weeping. She takes no notice of the feet that appear at the edge of her vision. Don't be afraid, Jesus says far more can be mended than you know. I've been meditating and just thinking on that phrase, far more can be mended than you know. I want to tell you, friends, there is no situation, there is no circumstance that we face collectively, maybe as a city or as a church or as a country. There's no situation or circumstance that you or I face as individuals that is beyond the reach of Jesus and his ability and power to change and transform. And there's no promise that God has made that he is incapable of fulfilling. And I say that so confidently because not only is he faithful, but the greatest enemy, death, has been defeated once and for all. Everything else is small fry. And that means that we get to enjoy the endless spoils of the cross. And there's one in particular, as we bring this into land, that I want to hone in on this morning. 
as we celebrate how wonderful the resurrection of Jesus is. Romans chapter 8 says this, There is therefore, now, now, it was true when Paul wrote it, it is true today as I preach it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, we don't need to live under a guilty verdict. In Jesus, we don't need to carry the shame of our, of our sin and our shortcomings. In Jesus, that low-lying that low, uh, black cloud does not need to uh, hover over our lives continuously. By faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are followers of him. And it's true what the word of God says, but the question I ask you today, is that your experience? Are we collectively living in the reality of that? Rugby is one of my favorite spectator sports. I'm sure there are people here who have no idea what rugby is. It's too long to explain. But let me say it's a variation of soccer and, and American football. In fact, it's not. But that's, uh, that's a one-second one attempt at explaining rugby. But one of the great things about rugby is they have this rather intriguing penalty for players who commit a fairly egregious foul. If they do a kind of a run-of-the-mill foul, then the referee will blow his whistle and it's a penalty to the opposing team. If they do a terrible foul, then the referee will show that person the red card and they're sent off the field never to come back again. But if they do like a fairly egregious foul, kind of somewhere between the two, the referee pulls out a yellow card and he points to the sideline and he sends them off for 10 minutes to a place, you won't believe this, called the sin bin. It literally is called the sin bin. It's hilarious. It's rugby purgatory right there. And players are told to leave and they trudge off with their shoulders down, just feeling the scorn and the shame of their mistake, just feeling terrible because they've let their team down. And they go and they stand in the sin bin for 10 minutes and spectators hurl their, their wrath and their anger at this player because of the, the mistake that he has made. Zeke, why don't you come up? I want to just illustrate something. There's a I'm not going to send you into the sin bin, I promise. You can put that on. But there is a, another sin bin of sorts. There's a sin bin that contains God's righteous, justifiable wrath and anger because of my sin and yours. A sin bin that contains his, his anger and, and his wrath because of us falling short of his, of his glory, as the Bible teaches. And that sin bin... That wrath and anger of God should be poured out on us. But through a remarkable act of God's grace, a remarkable act of the love of the Father, He pours out the sin bin on Himself in Jesus Christ on the cross. Like that. And you know what? The sin bin is emptied for all whose faith is in Jesus Christ. It's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, God made him, Christ, who had no sin, be sin for us. My sin placed on the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. By faith, through grace, the gift of grace, that's true of me and it's true of you. And so the next time that I sin, and I will, the next time that I sin, it's only appropriate for me to feel like I need to cover myself with the wrath and anger of God. And so what do I do? I go to the sin bin of God 
And I realize it's empty. There's nothing to condemn me from God's end. But sadly, what do we do? We go back to our past mistakes. And we think God would be pleased by reminding ourselves of the mistakes that we've made. And we condemn ourselves. I want to ask you, whose version are we going to believe? Ourselves or the eternal Father who says the sin bin has been emptied? But as if that was, I mean, as if that, that's incredible. God has removed our sin and placed it upon Jesus. But, but Paul goes one step further. He says, God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God says, take off your garments of shame and sin. Take off your garments of guilt and condemnation, and cast those aside, and I'm going to give you the robe of righteousness of Jesus. I'm going to clothe you in Jesus's perfection, in Jesus's beauty, in Jesus's holiness. Thanks, Zeke. God, uh, uh, God made him who had no sin be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only is my sin forgiven. But God now sees me as holy and blameless in his sight. Friends, that's not license to live a life of sin. That's empowering truth for us to live a life that brings honor and glory to God, knowing that when we fall short, and we will, the sin bin of God's wrath has already been drained. I wonder if the worship team can come up. Is the promise of God's forgiveness good news, friends? Yes, you better believe it. Is it too good to be true? Not a chance. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact of history, but it's way more than that. The resurrection of Jesus is merciful. Salvation is by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. The resurrection of Jesus is personal. God is calling each of you and me by name. He wants the revelation of Him defeating death to be made known to us in a fresh way today. And friends, the resurrection of Jesus is wonderful. By faith in Him, your sin has been placed on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness has been placed on you, which is why Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Before we break bread together, friends, I feel like we need to respond to this word, not to my preaching. I'm asking you, please don't respond to my preaching. Respond to the truth of God's word that says in Christ, my sin has been placed on him and his righteousness has been placed on me. Respond to the truth this morning that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I feel like we need to be courageous today. And those of us here who are struggling with that truth, struggling to, to grasp the experiential reality of no condemnation, I feel like we need to respond and have God come and minister over us as, as we gather around you. I'm gonna ask that we stand together, please. And in a few moments, I'm gonna ask some of you to be really brave. And I wanna ask you to come forward and just as an act of faith, but also an act of courage to say, Jesus, 
I'm struggling with condemnation. I'm a child of God. I, I, I believe it's true, but I want to experience it today. And in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to come forward. And as we go back into a song of worship, as a leadership team, we're just going to quickly gather around you and lay hands on you and trust for God to break off that condemnation in Jesus' name and to clothe you with His righteousness, His love, His beauty, His acceptance. Before we do that, perhaps there are some here who have never responded to the gospel where you have said, Jesus, I want you to come into my life as my Lord and Savior. Jesus, I wanna surrender my life to you. I have tried doing this on my own and I recognize that I can't. Today, I wanna give you my heart. I wanna lay my life down at your feet and ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. I would love to pray with you if that's you. If you're saying, Steve, I wanna make that decision today. Can I ask you, I'm not gonna call you forward. I just wanna pray with you right where you're standing. If that's you, would you mind just lifting up your hand? Just letting me know that you are responding to the gospel today. I would love to lead you in a prayer where you receive Jesus into your heart for the first time. Does anyone want to respond to that? Jesus, thank you for the remarkable gift of your salvation. We love you and we praise you. We're going to go back into a song. And I'm going to ask you right now, if you want that condemnation to be broken off of you, I'm gonna ask you right now, if you wouldn't mind slipping out of your seats and coming forward and just worshiping up here up, up front. And then I'm gonna ask the leaders, uh, elders, deacons, life group leaders, just to quickly gather around those folks and just to lay hands on them and to pray the bro- condemnation broken off in Jesus' name. Can we respond to that this morning? Can we let God do what God needs to do? Let's worship together, but come forward, please. If you are wanting to receive prayer, I'm gonna ask you, please, to come forward and let's begin to allow God to do business in our hearts this morning.